This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Shana Tova. Sometimes the angel of grief deposits a particular memory at your doorstep again and again. You open the door wondering, hoping that today will bring a new delivery, some new reminiscence that slipped free from the tightly wound knot of forgetfulness that lives inside of you. Maybe a memory from when you were young together a moment of eyes meeting in silent recognition that you're thinking the same thing. An everyday moment, simple and joyous and painfully precious. But today, the angel of grief brings the same small parcel as yesterday and the day before, the same memory of our trip to the Sky Islands in 2008. The road trip began in Maryland. Five of us packed into a family minivan, childhood friends from Camp Ramah in New England. We were 21. The open road, the perfect canvas for the freedom we felt, the adventure we pursued. We, we decided it was too cliche to read Jack Kerouac, so we took turns instead reading aloud Edward Abbey's novel, The Monkey Wrench Gang. It's a story about a group of ecologically-minded misfits who unleash all sorts of mayhem on the polluters of the American Southwest. We listened to Radiohead and Wilco and Talib Kweli and played Trivial Pursuit and drove through the night and kept a collective journal. It was our friendship, beautiful, deep, and evolving. It's the kind of friendship I pray my kids will know someday. Our destination was the Sky Island mountain range in southeastern Arizona. It was off the beaten path, which made it that much more exciting. We, we learned that these were isolated mountains rising up from the surrounding desert floor. So the experience of hiking these mountains meant moving through incredible landscape and wildlife diversity, starting in the desert, working our way through forests, eventually to snowy mountain peaks. We were as prepared for the multi-day summit as anyone our age could reasonably be expected. But at a certain point, it was clear that we were no longer on the trail. We had no idea where on the map we were located. Honestly, it was probably a little too late in the day to make the decision that we made. But here's the logic that won out. We know we aren't yet at the top, so pick the highest point we can see and just start climbing. Go up, you'll probably find the summit. And it wasn't that safe, and it was physically quite demanding, but we made it. We were so happy and relieved and moved by the beauty of the view, but not like Eric was. He was overcome with emotion, feeling with every ounce of his being the wonder of it all. He was fully present, his heart stretched wide open, taking it all in. The view from the summit was spectacular. In every direction, a mountain island in a desert sea. From, from this vantage point, from the sky, 
you're reminded that there are hundreds of mountains just like the one we climbed, distinct from one another, separated by stretches of barren land, their peaks dotting the landscape. We were so grateful and humbled to be there. Why this memory? I asked the angel of grief. Why take me to this sky island day after day? I survey the landscape again, and I see grief as an island that each of us who have loved and lost inhabit. Each island a terrain of pain, jagged and sharp in some places, smooth and well-worn in others. I've come to learn the unique features of my island's landscape just as you have learned yours. Don't get stranded, we remember, so we ask each other to come over for a bit, to traverse the desert that lies between your island and mine. Sometimes we climb to the peak to see once again that this island is part of an unending chain of islands, each built from the double helix of grief and love still being built by grief and love. But it's more than that. Why this memory? Because in it, Eric was so alive. I can feel how he was, who he was, standing on the top of the mountain. 14 years later, on May 5th, 2022, Eric was fatally hit by a truck while riding his bicycle near his home in Brooklyn. He was 35 and eagerly awaiting the arrival of his first child with his wife, Tammy, who he had loved since we were teenagers. The ripples of his death extend far and wide, a testament to how much of a mensch he was, how deeply loved he was by his colleagues, by his friends, most of all by his family. I'm telling you this story because I know some of the grief you carry, my beloved community. How it aches to arrive at Konidre without the ones you love by your side. I, I know that despite the profound differences between the islands of grief we each stand upon, we are intimately connected by the experience of loss. For me, and perhaps for you too, it's a friend. A kind of grief our tradition doesn't speak enough about. For some here, it's a parent, a partner, or a sibling. For some, it's a child, ripped from you too soon. The absence of our loved ones is so painfully present. It's both the experience of gathering for the High Holy Days and the themes of these days that bring us face to face with this grief. We say that the book of life is open and we know that there are no guarantees. Our liturgy and our pleading, our dressing in white and fasting, our promises to live differently, to the make the most of whatever time we have here on this planet, this is all the spiritual work and mirror of this season. And so, just as Rabbi Braus took us on Rosh Hashanah into the pain and the beauty of the final chapter of life, urging us to face death with clarity and courage, I hope this message 
can pick up that conversation and continue it through the journey of mourning. We know how hard it is to look at these questions to expose these wounds, but in the shared space of brokenheartedness, we can look together for the questions that punctuate our grief. How do we mourn? How can we live in a rewritten present? How can we stay connected to our deceased loved ones? I'm going to share some of my story trying to answer these questions, not because my answers need to be yours, but because I believe we share the questions. And I hope that in naming and exploring these questions and the journeys they send us on, you'll tap into the truths you seek to remember or discover, that together we'll look into the cracks of our hearts, tracing their lines to the love we wish to uplift. Eleven days after Eric died, I had the following dream, which I recorded as soon as I woke up. We were at some unrecognizable park about to leave, standing at a big swinging gate. Camp friends were there, but I'm not sure who specifically. Eric and I were speaking face to face. He had a big smile, looking a bit younger than his current age, but he was comically tall, like 12 feet tall. He said to me, so I heard you were at my funeral. I think I nodded. He might have said, how was it? But I'm not sure. Or maybe I wasn't sure if the question was rhetorical. Next thing I knew, he started drifting to the sky like he was being pulled up by strings in a diagonal upward movement, balloon-like. He got smaller and smaller as he rose higher and higher. And I collapsed the pavement, sobbed uncontrollably. My friends wanted to pick me up from the ground, but I laid there in a fetal position, sobbing. In the next image, I'm walking with Eric, seemingly from the park we had just left, having a normal conversation. I asked him what he was learning these days. And he said, the Talmudic tractate, Bava Metzia. When I woke up, I felt like I couldn't move or didn't want to move. I felt like my body had been through the crying in the dream, sadness still covering me. Not, not necessarily a cathartic cry, but the kind of release that left me tender and fragile. I thought about Bava Metzia, the tractate of the Talmud that deals with the laws of returning lost objects to their owners and what it meant for Eric to utter these words. Above all, I felt profoundly grateful for this dream. It felt like a visit, like communication, like an invitation to continue to be in relationship with him, to learn with him in a space, in a book that's central to my identity, to the way that I navigate the world. I don't want to lose you in this moment of personal interpretation. We are a tradition and a community that faces the unknown of, li of what lies beyond with humility. I offer no authoritative truth for this mystery. Just one picture to place alongside your picture of how the deceased remain with us. Some of us are rationalists, some are mystics, some speak of the soul and its continued journey, some find these claims painful in light of their experiences of loss. 
I'm not asking you to relinquish your picture. I'm asking us to look at what generates the picture, a shared desire to find and cherish that which endures. This is about checking in with your heart and locating the love that still lives there even when they're gone. Love that accompanies you and shapes you and creates you and choosing to be where the love is. It took me six months to open Bava Metzia. I moved the Book of Talmud from my desk to my nightstand to my office, simultaneously avoiding it and carrying it with me everywhere. Over the last year, I've spent many agonizing hours and some incredibly beautiful ones learning this text in search of my dear friend, Eric. Learning this text as a vehicle for my grief to take me where it needed me to go. The primary theme of chapter two of Vav Matziah is what's called Hashavat Aveda, returning lost objects. From the moment of the dream, I, I felt the resonance of this topic, the horrible truth that he was lost to us and perhaps the words of this text could help me find him. But immediately I was confronted with how different the starting place is for the Talmud than my own. These finds belong to the finder and these finds one is obligated to announce and attempt to return. And then page after page, fleshing out the details of these scenarios. When you find something, how do you know if you can keep it or if you have to return it? In making that decision, how does one factor in the value of the object, the location where it's found? Does it look like it fell there or was it placed there on purpose? Are there identifying features that someone would recognize and be able to describe? Or is it an object like a dollar bill? Looks like any other dollar bill. But what if the dollar bill is folded like a little sailboat? Okay? We wonder why Jews are neurotic. <laughs> Look, there's something incredible about the society the Talmud is trying to build, right? This is one that takes seriously our responsibilities towards one another, that if someone loses something, we don't default to finders, keepers. We recognize the anxiety of having lost something, and we try to respond to that by making a good faith effort to return the lost object. It's a network of reciprocity Social bonds are strengthened through personal, communal obligation. And yeah, like any other legal system, the details matter. Like the holiness in our tradition is expressed through the mundane. But the Talmud begins with an assumption that something lost has been found. That's the premise for the pages that follow. That wasn't the starting place for my grief. I felt like we had lost Eric and I couldn't find him. And I desperately wanted to find him. And this sacred text was somehow gonna help me do it, to return him to where he once was, to whom he was once with. As I fought with these pages of text, I realized I was trying to bring him back. If only I could figure out how to bring him back. This is Joan Didion's year of magical thinking. And it's what she means when she writes in the months after her husband John's sudden death, bringing him back had been through those months my hidden focus, a magic trick. By late summer, I was beginning to see it clearly. Seeing it clearly did not yet allow me to give away the clothes he would need. There's a moment in the Talmud, a spotlight shifts temporarily, 
from the experience of the finder to the seeker of their lost possession. There are some kinds of losses, some circumstances of loss, the Talmud explains, where the seeker despairs of recovering their possession. Vadai nitya mimena. Yeush is the despair we feel when someone is truly gone. And it's the beginning of the journey towards accepting that we're really not going to find them as they once were. This is central to the grief so many of us know firsthand. It's the worst possible feeling that we'll never hug them again and they aren't going to walk through the kitchen door. I so badly wanted to hear Eric's voice again, somehow pick up the conversation where I had left off. When I'd sit down to study these pages, I'd take out the picture of the two of us that lived in my book and I'd tell him what page we're on and what the rabbis were fighting about and what did I thought about and what did he think about it. So much silence. That's Yeush as well. Learning through pain that the relationship can't exist how it used to. It's a horrible feeling. I wish it wasn't true. But here's the thing about Yeush. In Bava Metziah, it, it functions as a release mechanism. It allows the finder to keep what they found because they know that the search for that particular item has ceased. As I read these laws of lost and found, I realized that we who grieve inhabit both roles. We are the Baal and Motze. We lost what belonged to us, and only when we despair of finding them as they were can we begin to find them as they are now. It's no substitute, but it's all we have. Yeush means letting go of that impossible hope so that we can begin to look for them in different ways. And I've come to believe that even when they're gone, there are ways to find them. So I begin again with that first sentence of the Talmud. Elu mitziot shelo. These found objects belong to the finder. Al tikra mitziot. I say back to the page, don't read it as found objects. Rather, read it as mitziot, realities. From mitziot to mitziot. Change the vowel. Reorient. Now it reads, these realities, even in their brokenness, can belong to me. A reality in which I can feel Eric's presence, in which we can feel the presence of our loved ones by caring about what they cared about, by uplifting and carrying forward the work that animated them. Eric was an architect, and the design he was most passionate about was multi-faith worship spaces. These are the interfaith chapels and quiet meditation rooms and airports, hospitals, prisons, universities, and they're rarely intentionally designed. But what if, Eric asked, these could be real spaces of multi-faith gathering where Jews and Sikhs and Muslims and Christians could come together and worship one broken heart next to the other. If I can uplift that vision, his dream, I continue to walk with him, to advance the work that mattered to him. And so I ask, what kind of world was your loved one trying to build? What brokenness were they committed to repairing? 
And what's your role in keeping that vision moving forward? At the center of caring about what they cared about is loving who they loved. And in doing so, we bring their love with us. We channel it and share it and grow it. We try as hard as we possibly can to keep the promises of a shared lifetime or the promises made in those final moments to look after the kids, loving them as fiercely and fully as you did, to take care of mom like you used to, to keep getting together for holidays and vacations, to call each other more often, to show up with that big generous heart of yours. In this reality, we find your love and we make it ours. We stitch it into the torn seams of our own broken hearts so that every expression of love comes from us both. One of the fundamental reorientations of loss is the discovery that so much of me is because of you. It's always been true, but it often comes into greater clarity upon their death. Who I am is inseparable from your fingerprints, the ways you shaped and guided me, pushed and inspired me. In grief, we try to learn, this time with our hearts, that just by being me, I'm still with you. You're here because I'm here. When I listen with curiosity like you so often did, when I put on Chopin's nocturnes, when I cultivate beautiful friendships, I am the me you taught me to be. Maybe you catch yourself saying something your loved one always used to say. And then there they are present in your heart. Maybe it's the recipe they always brought out for special occasions, the way you walk your company back to their car. You know, they taught you that. Perhaps it's the courage you found to make that big change and you could feel yourself nudged along, encouraged, supported by the one who gave you that gift in the first place. Of course, it's not the same. But nothing is the same in this new reality. We're trying to learn a new language for this relationship, trying to translate a different lexicon of love into something we can understand, something we can really feel in our depths. And yeah, it takes work and yeush and imagination and memory and persistence through exhaustion, but it can be found. This love that created you can continue to sustain you. There's one more piece of this new reality that I want to explore. In Catherine Schultz's deeply moving memoir, Lost and Found, she tells the story of grieving her father's death alongside the concurrent experience of finding and falling in love with her wife. From within her grief, she writes, the most important thing that had vanished when he died, I realized in that instant, is wholly unavailable to me. Life as it looked to him. Life as we all live it, from the inside out. I understand what she's saying. When someone dies, we lose the world through their eyes. We can no longer ask them what they think about something or what it felt like to be somewhere. Most painfully, we lose how they saw us, how loved we were to them. We won't hear them say that again, not like they used to. But I want to say 
to Catherine Schultz and to myself and to you, I don't think it's wholly unavailable to us. I believe there are ways to find and claim and feel what they felt about us, to locate the certainty of their love, the texture of their emotion, and then accept it again and again, to see myself as he saw me. That's the gift of the dream. He saw me as someone who will look for what's lost and dedicate my life and my rabbinate to returning what can be found. When I see myself as he saw me, I find and am found in my greater purpose, in my life's work. I want to invite you to take a deep breath. Bring forward the image of someone who really loved you. What did their love for you feel like? What dream did they hold for you, even when it was hard to hold it for yourself? What did their love for you know that you need to be reminded of? Wherever they are now, their love for you lives here in your heart. Can you go there, even for a little? Meet them in their love for you. Feel them in their belief in you. In that space, maybe you can find who you need to be in this world. And when we're living our purpose, when we're guided by their love, the blessings of their life endures. May the blessings of their life endure. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe and please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you maybe even in person sometime soon.